0: The whole Delaware aqueduct issue, um, it stems from the fact that there is a an enormous leak uh, near Newburgh from the supply that's coming from the risk force in the, in generally the Catskills, that's County Philp, the and neversink Sink. The aqueduct is actually an 85-mile-long tunnel that burrows under the Hudson River in order to bring that water to New York City, but the part that's under the river is where the problem is. The Underneath of the river there is limestone and about maybe two thirds, three quarters of the tunnel that they've been using was middle lined, but about a quarter or a third wasn't. And the limestone has fractured and allowed the water that's supposed to stay in the tunnel to leak into the river. Repairing that has been a top priority for the New York City Department of Environmental Protection for many years. But it's also a bit of a problem because you know it's underneath the river. So what they decided to do is still the second tunnel. And what the shutoff is all about is making sure that the uh, the tunnel uh, is available for men and women to work 700 feet down um, in order to make the new connections happen. Um, so it was first proposed in 2022, then it was proposed for this year, 2023, and now it's pr- prupo- proposed that it's postponed pr- till 2024. And what they're going to be doing sometime soon-ish, we don't have an exact date yet, The so, A press person for the NYC DEP, John Milgram, sent us an email that basically said it hasn't been planned yet, and the dewatering is an emptying of. The the tunnel to allow them to see what sort of shape that that remainder of the tunnel is because you can't send people down to work on a tunnel if if there's a threat of filling with water. So because of the dewatering trial that they had back in the spring, they had a two week period where they essentially emptied the tunnel. sort of see what it was like and the results of that was of enough concern to make me feel that they need a longer dewatering period to see exactly what they need to help keep people safe which is has a lot to do with pumping because of course i'm sure you know the ground underneath our feet is full of waterways and those are called aquifers the ground underneath the hudson river is also full of aquifers and those aquifers bleed water into the tunnel as well as the tunnel leaking water into the river. And when the tunnel is empty, more water is coming in than going out. So the purpose of the dewatering is to estimate what exactly, like, what more they need to do. Is it uh, more in different sorts of equipment? Is it more um, more pumping equipment? Is there a different sort of electrical supply they need to use? Uh, the dewatering is a crucial test for them to decide what it is they need to actually shut down the tunnel.
1: One of the concerns that I've heard from residents and other reporters uh, have brought up to me was the possible chance of the ground caving in or having sinkholes once the, they do start doing their repairs and once the land that was had is water under it uh, more than normal because of the leak, that once that leak stops and once the water is taken away from that area, uh, there, there could be more sinkholes in the area. How real is that concern?
0: As far as I know, the New York Department of Environmental Protection is taking these concerns seriously, and it is legitimate to worry that there is a certain dynamic tension when there is a a lot of water running through a tunnel, and suddenly you don't have water. What's going to happen to that tunnel? The more fragile the rock, the more susceptible it would be to some sort of collapse. But I don't believe that most of the areas where the tunnel goes through, you know, basically land as opposed to under the river. I don't know that much of that um, is that sort of fragile rock that is likely to collapse. Um, but I would think that it might be a really good idea for people who have concerns like that to reach out to the NYC DEP themselves to sort of get get the sort of uh, the engineering 411 on their partic- particular locality. Because the two leaks that they're looking on fixing is one outside the town of, inside the town of Warsing and another, of course, under the Newburgh bridge. So apparently leaks have happened, not just under the Hudson, but also in War So um, it would seem logical that where there has been leaks, there might be a problem with um, the the strength of the tunnel uh, while it's dewatered. Um, but it's something that if people reach out, I think, directly to the NYCDE3, I think that might be the best way to answer the, the specific questions that they have. My impression is that, uh, certainly when we were reviewing, uh, when they were reviewing the possibility of shutting down the tunnel last year, some of the communications from the NYC DEP were not fly first class, I would uh, sort of have to guess. But it seems to me this year, they're much more concerned about what the residents that are the neighbors of this tunnel, and the neighbors of the the very, the three big reservoirs, and the tailwaters of those reservoirs, and even the people who live on the on the year of Delaware itself, they seem to be a little more attuned to those concerns and more likely to pay attention to them. But since the for lack a, the, the geomorphology, how the land is made, is going to be different in different places. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that concern. That's why I'm suggesting that people could uh, reach out to the DEP themselves.
1: And we're talking about the Delaware aqueduct shutdown, which brings millions and millions of water to New York you City.
0: You that, that the water systems in New York sort of has, it grew first into Westchester, then up into Ulster with um, the, the, the reservoirs up there. And only in the 50s and 60s did they include the reservoirs that we're familiar with in the Catskills. So what is going to happen when they shut down the water that they get through the Delaware Aqueduct, they're going to have to rely on those other reservoirs, the ones north north of us in Ulster and then the ones in Westchester. Now, the Westchester system is much more piecemeal. They're, the, 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 the reservoirs in the Catskills are enormous compared to the other reservoirs. Um, there's also the, the sort of undisputed fact of the matter is that the water from those reservoirs, what I call our reservoirs, um, is really high quality. It's, it's, they don't have to do a lot to it to make it, um, you know, appropriate for people to drink. But they will have to shift the, uh, the quantity of water that New York needs to these other reservoir systems. And of course, one of the things that makes the, um, the process so sort of risky is, you probably know too, that they had planned when they shut down the reservoirs to bring the reservoirs to a 30% void. Okay. And if we have normal rain, the reservoirs would be able to fill up. But if we have more than normal rain, this is why people were nervous about flooding because the reservoirs could fill. But if we have less than normal rain and the reservoirs don't fill up again, using those other reservoirs that are in Ulster and in uh, Westchester, they're going to be pounding those reservoirs pretty hard. And by the time they finish this repair, those reservoirs are going to be almost empty. So they need to be able to switch over to the uh reservoirs as quickly as possible. So there's like this, you know, like how you plan for the next six months of weather, it becomes a um, a really difficult sort of decision. I certainly know that the DEP, NYC DEP is taking it very seriously, and they've got boatloads of meteorologists and engineers working on it. But no matter how smart we humans are, Mother Nature <laughs> can throw us a curveball. So um, in, in the long term, there's a there's there's a lot to be considered in a in a project like this. Um, I don't know that there's any guarantees that anybody can give that as a result of the shutdown when it does happen, that there might not be problems. I think that NYCD is doing the best it can to find out what those problems might be and take, you know, take measures to prevent them.
1: And you're talking about the weather and how unpredictable weather can be and, and just look at but just look what happened last summer. Last summer, we had a really bad drought season and it led into the fall and, you know, uh, wells went dry and, and uh, the weather pattern has been yeah, as, uh, especially not wet winter. We didn't have a lot of snow this winter. So there's already indications in towns like, I to say, the town of Fallsburg is sort of during, during their busy season are, are saying that, you know, there's possibility that some Parts of Fallsburg can run out of water for a certain amount of time, and that's
0: where and and you know that I'm sure that when you know the the smart people who study this stuff they say the impact of climate change for the whole Delaware River Basin, which includes obviously the area around the New York City reservoirs, is more rain when it rains and less rain when it doesn't. So it is likely that we're going to swing from heavy rain and a lot of it to less rain. So we're gonna we're gonna swing between the the danger of flooding and the danger of drought. The other thing about climate change that sometimes we don't think of as much, the lack of snow melt, especially in the upper river, is one of the key contributors to, like, groundwater uh, scarcity. Because it's not just that water needs to appear in a lake or stream, especially when you're talking about well systems. You need to have those aquifers, those underground aquifers, recharge. And the way we're used to our, you know, our world, working in this part of the world, is that there is snowmelt that recharges those aquifers slowly over time. Because what happens with rain, it'll happen quick and it's gone. And unless you have a reservoir to contain the rain, you don't really have the benefit of it. But snowmelt, if that seeps into the aquifer, then that then that's a much slower process and that recharges our underground water resources, especially for people who have wells.
1: We were just talking to a farmer in Mountaindale talking about climate change and how Some of the effects are sort of manifesting itself. And one of the things he brought up was, like I said, the winter. Like I said, this past winter wasn't a lot of snow, and he didn't have to drive, didn't have to plow his driveway, which he found odd. And then you have these early frost uh, dates that are happening that kills vegetation and things like that. And it seems like the, the balance is off.
0: There's so many systems that we have that are built on an understanding of our weather. That we've had for like I don't know hundred years more whatever, um, and whether it's um, groundwater supply for people's wells or how even little streams behave. Um, the little house I live in in Lords Valley, we have a stream behind us that never overflows. Well, I'm looking at that stream thinking you might overflow given you know given some of the rainstorms that we might be feeling, and so I'm like starting to think of what I can do to maybe maybe shore up that stream or what, I don't know what we have to do really. And that sort of notion of what's going to be happening to our infrastructure is becoming more and more an issue for local communities to start to address. Um, And especially, I mean, one of the great things about the Catskills is it's water rich. Well, that's a great thing until even small streams start overflowing their banks and who ends up getting having to deal with flooding and what communities then end up having to improve their infrastructure to make sure that people don't get affected by flooding. And those infrastructure improvements do not come cheap. And the towns um, and the counties and the Catskills and the upper Delaware, they are not flush with cash. I mean, they do a great job with the money they have. But if something suddenly costs them a million bucks, wah, there's no piggy bank for those towns to be able to sort of spend the money on it. So it's just fascinating, um, and a little anxiety provoking what the impact of climate change can be. It's sort of obvious. It's also subtle.
1: As a reporter, I cover stories that live in the same manner about their their floods. They were having, it seemed like 100 year floods every other year, it seems like. And just watching the devastation that that comes to a town and, you know, the damage that it causes to homes, flooding that is, and the damage that it causes to infrastructure and to for a town to shore up the infrastructure and to help prevent things like this happening or somehow, it's very costly. Uh, and it's, you know, for small towns like like they are in Fallsburg, to do something like that, it could be very hard in the budget. And, and you know, it end, ends up costing either way in some capacity because if the flood does happen. You have to pay for that damage.
0: It's really, it's very, very tough. It's quite monumental. And um, I think that, um, the federal government, the states, and counties and towns need to be somehow sort of working on this collaboratively, which you know, uh, unfortunately, in our present political environment, doesn't happen all that easily. But that's really because rather than spend millions of dollars repairing um, roads, bridges, houses, repairing those after a flood, would it be better to be proactive and start thinking about what they need to do to re- to prepare? for floods. So instead of spending million dollars, you know, it's sort of like the classic thing that we look at, this is obviously not your neck of the woods, but down the Jersey shore, they have these million dollar homes and the ocean decides that it wants to take them away or knock them down or whatever. And they rebuild in the same place because the property is uh, expensive and who wouldn't love to live in a nice house by the shore? But it's just thought about letting nature have its way. And to not keep on building in harm's way, to somehow understand what a floodplain use is, to understand there's like a growing interest and knowledge about green infrastructure that helps us mitigate the effects of flooding with a broader a broader understanding. Instead of just, I always call it the U.S. US Army Corps of Engineer approach, which is to create a giant co- concrete culvert. Instead of just pushing the water away from where we don't want it, to let the water have some say in where it goes and let it then seep into the ground, which will then help us recharge those aquifers that I was talking about. So there's, there's lots of really smart thinking going on about this, but it's a question of whether the, the smaller communities can have access to the smart thinking to uh, plan according to that smart thinking and to find the money that will fund those initiatives for the smart
1: and already the weather has been very curious for this past summer. We're talking about, uh, the uh, first of all, the smoke. I was already twice already in New York. Uh, we had smoke from the Canadian wildfires and torrential downpours. I saw videos uh, recently from Goshen, New York, where there was a large-scale uh, hail coming down and destroying uh, porches and destroying uh, car windows. So it's, uh, it's already an interesting, su- interesting summer, and it looks like it will be more interesting weather-wise this upcoming summer.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, the, there is that apocryphal Chinese uh, curse, may you live in interesting times. Well, I think we're living in interesting times and to try, I mean, it's even um, interesting in that slightly negative understanding, um, it's even an interesting time for regular stuff. It's a re- regular farmers, regular land planners, it's uh, difficult for them. But again, sort of going back to the way it is started. Uh, The difficulties of uh, creating a plan that will work for a repair project this size, it's certainly a headache I'm glad I don't have.
1: Meg, before we go, is there anything else we have not touched on? Do you want folks to know?
0: I think that's probably the most important thing for, uh, for listeners of WJFF. The only other thing that I was going to mention is you're familiar with the Upper Delaware Council, right? Yeah. And one of the things that's been an ongoing problem for them is the lack of funding that they were promised when they were set up. There was supposed to be a, a, a $100,000 from New York and $100,000 from Pennsylvania. And as development has proceeded at pace everywhere in the Upper Delaware, the ability of the UDC to advise town on what is what is perceived to be good development versus not very good development is becoming more crucial. But without the money that they need to sustain them, it's going to be hard for them to provide the advice and counsel that these towns need in order to be, because they're like, they're like one of those engines that could help us understand how to smartly develop and how to smartly deal with the the problem of flooding. Because what they can be with the local representatives and uh, is sort of a voice for this area in the state because you know the upper delaware for both new york and pennsylvania is because of the lack of population it doesn't have a lot of wallop when it comes to making noise so the more that they can sort of unify and create a voice that demands to be heard it is a better chance for the communities there to be to have the most up-to-date information to understand how to develop wisely and not to develop in places that will be subject to flood.
1: We were talking to the founder and publisher of Delaware Currents, a news magazine about the Delaware River and the people who use it. Meg, thank you so much for talking to us on the program and letting us know about the aqueduct shutdown and why it was postponed and what it means to our listeners. Thank you, Meg. We hope to have you back on soon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Robayo.